Hi, everybody, and welcome to the October 16th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. On Saturday, protesters gathered for anti-fascist and patriot counter-rallies in Denver Civic Center Park. Things turned deadly when a security contractor for a local news station shot and, what, shot and killed a protester during an altercation. Officials announced Thursday that Matthew Doloff has been charged with second-degree murder. Penny Cahoon from Westford, we start with you on this one. Um, uh, this is opening a whole new set of conversations about how we are covering things in 2020, rallies, protests, and everything in between. Um, and I believe that we're probably just getting started with these questions. What do you think? Well, this story has everything, including, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a dead man. Uh, it was amazing that these two dueling demonstrations had peace, relatively peacefully, and I'm talking yelling, maybe a couple soup cans thrown. They had coexisted thanks largely to very good work by the Denver Police Department. On Saturday afternoon, the soup drive by BLM and Antifa had been set up to counter the Patriot muster, but they'd been coexisting relatively peacefully until everyone is starting to leave. One provocateur starts making a lot of noise. Not a surprise that the media would go in the direction of where that noise is. The surprise, of course, was that he, he accosted um, Lee Keltner there. Then all of a sudden, Lee Keltner gets out his mace or bear spray or whatever it was and winds up being shot, allegedly, by Matt Dolev, who was a security guard hired by Channel 9 through Pinkerton, although Pinkerton seems to take no responsibility. He, he isn't licensed in the city of Denver, we know that. So what you have is an amazing media story, the culmination of protests all summer, and how you have those things, how do you protest effectively? How do you keep the peace and still let people have First Amendment rights? And then once a bell is rung, in this case, the misidentification of the shooter as Antifa, which was a mistake early on in the Denver Post, how do you unring that bell? Because it is still going on. We're going to be talking about this for weeks, and obviously it's made national news that mm-hmm. this happened. David Copel from the uh, Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, David, you're one of the, it is not exaggeration, you're one of the foremost Second Amendment experts uh, uh, around. Um, when we look at this issue, there's so many different angles to it, but now people are starting to talk about um, and I think with any situation, you're going to see the arguments about self-defense and armed security guards or secu- is it a security guard or a contractor and who hires us. There's, there's so many different angles to this. As you look at it from your expertise, what is some of the key things our viewers need to know? Well, to start with, the so-called Antifa, anti-fascist, is an absolutely false name for the, the one side in this uh, issue. Uh, this rally was put together by, by the Denver Communists and by Colorado Socialist Revolution and other groups, similar groups. The communism is functionally the same as fascism. And one of the many things they have in common, uh, besides mass murder, uh, is both violently suppress the freedom of speech for anyone they don't like. And so all over the country at these anti-fascist uh, riots and protests, uh, news crews that are trying to film them accurately and record what's going on have been violently threatened and, and sometimes attacked because their view as communists and fascists is the media is only allowed to portray the parts of us we want to allow them to show. So Channel 9 was being quite reasonable in having security uh, for its uh, em- employees out there. 
Now, the, however, it, it, does, it seems like uh, Channel 9, like uh, President Trump, doesn't always really hire the best people. Um, the guy who was the provocateur, perhaps the provocateur of this whole thing, uh, a Antifa guy named J- uh, Jeremiah Elliott, was apparently one of the riot commanders uh, at uh, one of the Aurora riots earlier this summer. He was wearing a T-shirt that said, Black Guns Matter. And I just want to let viewers know that Black Guns Matter is actually a good organization. It's based in Philadelphia, uh, founded by a guy named Maj Toure, who's also a, a rapper. And Black Guns Matter supports the right of black people and all other people to lawfully defend themselves, and it supports black guns, uh, which is to say, you know, guns made from modern plastics. So that jerk who was perhaps the root cause of all this definitely does not represent what Black Guns Matter really is all about. Eric, we turn to you on this one. Uh, Clearly, there's a lot of different levels of the conversation to be had, uh, all the way from media, uh, journalism, uh, to rallies and protests, and really everything in between, and uh, sadly, just everything that is 2020 right now. When you look at this uh, issue and all the various angles to it, what stands out to you? Oh, there's so many things, Dominic, but let me just touch on a few. As you pointed out in your question, this is uh, just a microcosm of this awful year. To hear David's uh, reply right before mine here, you would think there was only one side represented here, that it was only the Antifa, which really wasn't even necessarily Antifa, Black Lives Matter side. First of all, let me make clear, I have no particular use for Antifa or, or what they stand for or their tactics, but it does take two to tango. And, you know, David left out of his analysis any mention of the Patriot muster, uh, which was also present and also rallying last Saturday. It is a combustible mix. As Patty pointed out, the combustion seemed to be put off. Everyone seemed to be more or less behaving themselves. The Denver police were doing as good a job as possible, keeping them separated until the combustible mix proved combustible. Uh, In terms of fallout from this, yes, Nine News is under the gun and under the microscope. Uh, I think really Pinkerton, which I guess is denying or refusing to accept responsibility, I think Pinkerton is going to have the toughest case here. I know if I hire a subcontractor, I expect, and I think uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I suspect it's reflected in law, that I I expect the subcontractor to have gone through the necessary steps to make sure their personnel are properly licensed, properly trained, et cetera. Uh, Then you also go 60 miles up the road to Greeley this week, and speaking of combustion and speaking of leftist misbehavior, in this case, you had this guy, Christopher Jacks, Chris Jacks, who I guess is an activist of the Democratic Party up there and was filmed by Project Veritas, admittedly a a right-wing sort of undercover operation, saying incredibly hateful and violent things and, and wishing for violence and wishing for billionaires to die and all the rest. So it is the year we're living in, Dominic, and it is a tough year, and um, there are a whole lot of people with way too much caffeine and way too much ammunition. Natasha, in a different time, I might expect that something like this tragedy would give everyone a chance to actually pause and take a breath and 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 maybe uh, you know, reconsider what you know the the gravity of everything's going on. I no longer have any of that naivete, uh, naive optimism that it would happen this year. Uh, when you look at what this has done in the, the, all the different angles, all the different First Amendment stuff, all the way from speaking and protesting, but also uh, the press and journalism and uh, the safety of it and the sometimes the, the not safety of it. What what stood out to you as you looked at the events this week? 
Absolutely. If 2020 has taught us anything, it's that we do not have time to pause and reflect. Um, and certainly in the greater crisis that we're, we're dealing with right now with the coronavirus, we don't even have time to grieve um, in individual deaths, but but larger um, massive health crises throughout the country and the world. In, in this situation, it, there, it feels to be a little bit of deja vu. Several times this summer, we've sat around um, this show and talked about protests that have started out peacefully or that have had and very important messages to portray that get overshadowed by events. And, and that's, I think, for me, one of the, the major takeaways that, that might be worth focusing on. It's just how quick the, the relentless news cycle is moving in, in, these, in these moments. You know, the information uh, and misinformation that was moving out almost immediately after the shooting is, is so difficult to pull back. There is no way to, un to unwind um, those narratives once they've moved out into the world. But in addition, it's it's amazing how quickly this this whole situation escalated. You know, thanks to the hard work of a Denver Post photojournalist, we actually see in real time how this escalated, and it's a matter of seconds. And you know, as a human being, as as a journalist, as a mother sitting there and looking at how quickly uh, two, three, four seconds can dramatically change multiple people's lives is is always a shocking thing. But I do want to give kudos um, to Helen Richardson who is a photojournalist who was working on that product project. And we spent a lot of time talking about uh, journalists and the hard work that we they we and they do in um, war zones in our cities and in different situations. Of course, there was the nine news reporter who the station felt that they needed um, protection to keep them safe in this environment. But photojournalists um, like Richardson are, are there as well. And they have been documenting so much of our history over time. And in this moment, um, I just give kudos to her for her hard work, for not turning away um, and finding a way to do her job in an extremely difficult situation. Natasha, I think you bring up a great point. You see that wider shot where you actually see Helen taking those pictures and not flinching. They're, they're, what, what, what is she is seeing through that lens? Uh, she is not flinching, and we still see the product of that work. Uh, it is amazing. Your kudos are well-placed. John Hickelooper and Cory Gardner met for their fourth and final debate this week with both candidates trying to score points and deliver their final messages to voters. Highlights included questions to the candidates about if they felt their opponent or the president is a moral or an ethical person. Uh, David, we go to you first in this one. Do any of the debates or local issues uh, with this race, have they done anything to outweigh the national momentum and national issues that seem to be overwhelming it right now? I think probably not. As Eric has accurately said a number of times, Cory Gardner's been running a great campaign and, and Hickenlooper a, a mediocre one. Uh, but with the, the national tie, that, that may be all, all he needs. I think Marshall Zelliger and Kyle Clark did a good job on uh, asking challenging questions and even asking for follow-ups uh, sometimes for the, for the non-answers. Uh, Cory Gardner said he thinks Donald Trump has, has good morals, which obviously isn't true in objectively or for what Cory Gardner thinks. Uh, Hickenlooper pretended uh, that he doesn't have an opinion on uh, whether he'd vote to pack the U.S. Supreme Court. He says that's a hypothetical, which is sort of true in the sense that everything in the future is a hypothetical. But the Democratic leadership in the U.S. Senate has been threatening court packing ever since August uh, t August of 2019, when they sent the Supreme Court a threat letter in the form of an amicus brief saying that if you rule against New York City in a gun control case, we're going to pack the courts. So they've been itching to do this for a long time, and the uh, confirmation of Justice Barrett is a mere pretext uh, for what they were already talking about uh, 
long before. And so the fact that Hickenlooper won't answer, I think, tells you he knows it's very unpopular with the voters. But when Charles Schumer needs that vote, uh, Hickenlooper will deliver. David, I'm going to follow up with a quick question this because with your history and legal knowledge, you know this. When was the last time the Supreme Court grew in size? Um, and I'm in, putting you on the spot in the, here. In so the, you don't have in the Lincoln okay. administration, um, it, it, it had been up and down through from the early 1800s till the 1860s, as as small as five, as large as ten, and then since 1869, it's been a stable nine. Okay, so, and then the last time a major effort to pack it was Roosevelt, right? It was Roosevelt, which totally backfired on it, destroyed his first, his second term domestic agenda. And despite what you were taught in high school, Justice Owen Roberts did not switch because of pressure from FDR. His opinion in West Coast Hotel versus Parish was written before his vote was in on that before court packing was announced. I, I didn't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, but there's been so much conversation about, about court packing. I wanted to get a little bit of historical no, perspective. John Roberts is a coward who's easily politically pressured. Justice Owen Roberts was not. Okay. Uh, Eric, you, your turn on this one. I will not uh, uh, be uh, questioning you about uh, Supreme Court history, so don't worry about that. What I will ask is uh, there has been a reduction of national money being spent in Gardner's campaign. Sometimes that is being seen as uh, uh, not giving up, but just uh, not enough resources. Our friend Dick Wadhams uh, said that's not the problem. There's plenty of money, especially with Gardner. It's a national uh, momentum issue. What do you think? Well, a, a couple angles here. First of all, that was admirable on David's part to uh, reach back and uh, do some constitutional history in terms of the composition of the Supreme Court. I also agree with most of David's an analysis on on this question. I thought both Gardner, Cory Gardner was Cory Gardner in that debate. John Hickenlooper was John Hickenlooper. They were both true to form. Uh, Marshall Zellinger and Kyle Clark, I thought, did an admirable job of, of emceeing, moderating the debate. As far as I'm concerned, the two of them could do the next presidential debate uh, if there is a next presidential, uh, if there is a next presidential debate. Uh, Andrew Hill a week ago at Channel 7 also did a, de- a decent job of moderating a Senate debate. I'm not sure any votes, and I mean that almost in an absolute form, were moved here. Your question, Dominic, the, the money that's flowing in here, I think the change happened about three weeks or a month later than I expected it was going to happen. I had commented months ago that I thought by the time September rolled around, uh, the National Republicans might be pulling money back from Cory Gardner and having to spend it in other states that they didn't think were going to be at risk, but are now very much at risk. Places that should be deep red, like Kansas or Alaska or Montana or Iowa or Georgia, and they're having to defend Senate seats in all of those countries. So yes, I think the money is slowly but surely being, uh, being drained out of this race, which which tells you where it's at and where it's been at for some time. Natasha, we'll give you a toss-up here. You can either go with your favorite Supreme Court justice of the 1860s, or you can uh, offer analysis on if Hickenlooper has uh, done more to actually win this race or if it's basically being handed him by national issues. Oh, I wish I had a, a favorite Supreme Court just, uh, justice of the 1860s. Maybe I need to look that up and figure it out soon. Um, for this race, it's, it's very interesting because, yes, this is about two individuals, but it's really not. I think that more and more as time has gone on, this 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 election in particular is about Trump. It's a referendum on Trump. Do you like what he's doing or do you not? And that's filtering down to this race and others. And that's why we're seeing seeing the shift in monies. And, and some of that is 
is is related to Cory Gardner's actions. You know, in the debates, he's talked about his bipartisanship. We've seen ads about that as well. He's he's tried to put some distance between him and the Trump administration on topics like immigration. The problem is that I'm not sure that people are getting that message. Um, either it's coming too late or there were just too many photo ops with, with President Trump. So this is going to be a question of where Colorado votes. And if they uh, vote in favor of Trump, which I think is probably unlikely at this point, but you know, pollsters are always can be wrong. See 2016. Um, I think that's going to impact whether what happens with Cory Gardner. And as a result, Hickenlooper, for the most part, can just sit back, except in these rare moments of these debates where he's really had to um, take a stance. And as we've seen, some of his answers uh, went over better than others. And he certainly has some some weak spots in his campaign. It's just in this unusual year that is 2020. That's not the focus of the attention. Patty, keeping the theme of the 1860s, these weren't, I guess, in this case, 1850s. Uh, this wasn't exactly Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln debating these last couple of times. But uh, does Hickler have anything to worry about between now and November 3rd? It doesn't look like he, he does right now. Both of them had albatrosses coming into this campaign. Hickenlooper had the fact that he had said the Senate wasn't a good fit. I mean, he went into the campaign for president, you know, a likable political figure. He had really high marks in Colorado when he was governor, in Denver when he was mayor. But that's a really hard thing to deal with, as we can see from all the clips from Cory Gardner's campaign or Cory Gardner's supporters showing Hickenlooper saying that. On the other hand, a far larger albatross was around Cory Gardner's neck, and his name is Donald Trump. And all you need to do is do clips on, yes, Trump has good morals for the next few day, few weeks, and that alone is going to sink it. But it already seems like that ship's going down. Colorado's COVID-19 positivity rate hit an alarming 5% this week, resulting in the announcement from Denver Public Schools that in-person learning for middle and high school students will be postponed until at least November 9th. Governor Polis continued to warn citizens to take greater care, uh, but no new lockdowns have been announced. Mayor Hancock did announce on Friday morning of different mask orders and limiting groups from 10 down to 5. Uh, Eric, you've had some uh, pointed criticism of DPS both on this show and in your columns. Uh, what do you think of the announcement we've heard from them this week? Well, let me get to DPS. First of all, I'm surprised we're even talking about this, Dominic, because I thought this virus was going to, quote, miraculously disappear some time ago, and then it was going to be gone by election day and whatever. Obviously, uh, none of that happened. The opposite had happened. This thing is ramping up again. We're seeing an intense either second wave or some would say third wave. That wave hit Europe uh, a few weeks ago, and it is now hitting us. All of the indicators are sadly but dramatically up, whether it's hospitalization rates, positivity of test rates, simple, simple case count. Uh, we are in for a, a long fall and a long winter and a tough one, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to test people's resolve. As to DPS, yes, I've commented. I think they have had this thing backwards from the get-go. I think there's been completely absent a, a meaningful workable plan if anything schools should have been open during those warmer weather months of august and september maybe we even should have started in july when rates of transmission were down when you could do a lot of this outside when you had some other options the notion that all of a sudden we we're going to keep schools closed for august and september and open them in mid-october that was complete fallacy. Anybody knew that uh, that this thing was going to uptick uh, when the colder weather started to set in. DPS has been lost, and unfortunately, the ones that are paying the price uh, 
are, are, are those kids who are living in circumstances where they don't have great internet access or where they're reliant on schools for more than just an education, whether it's nutrition or, or, or just getting away from bad situations at home. So the, once again, the disparity in this country is coming to pass and the kids least able to be resilient are the ones calling, being called on to be most resilient. Natasha, Colorado has reacted appropriately before and gotten our numbers back down. Can it do it again? Well, you start running out of options. You start running out of the the special tricks that can help bring those numbers down because we've used many of them already. Um, One thing that's really important to pay attention to, I've mentioned in the past how obsessed I am with following the numbers on a day-to-day basis, but behind the numbers, I think it's important to listen to what the officials are talking about. And again, again, we hear this on Friday, but we've heard it all week, is that they don't want to shut the state down. They don't want to shut down cities. Um, You go to your favorite business um, with a mask on, of course, and and talk to that owner about what they're facing right now. And small businesses are struggling so much to make by with the current restrictions. Further restrictions is going to have a dire impact on our economy. At the same time, we're in a public health crisis. So how do you balance that? And as these officials are talking, they keep on saying that, that we need to find ways to bring these numbers down that don't also involve shutting down in the way that we did earlier in the spring. And I think that's that's the key takeaway here is that in an individual basis, that's what they're asking us. It's not necessarily about going to a park and arresting um, somebody or, or giving them a, a charge for, for gathering with six people as opposed to five people. This is about on an individual basis, what can people do to help keep our schools and our businesses open? And that's something individuals are going to have to address. Um, But it is a compelling argument that people should be listening to. Patty, do you think we'll see schools going to more and more virtual learning? I think most parents will be really considering whether or not they want to do that. I want to address both um, what Hancock said today and Polo said today, which is Hancock is following the lead of Boulder County. Remember, Boulder County really condensed the number of gatherings you could have, especially younger people gathering. And Boulder County did manage to knock their numbers down. So to echo what Natasha is saying, the state and the city want to be sure that businesses are impacted as little as possible right now, considering that they're already taking catastrophic hits. And so in Denver, the announcement that Hancock made, businesses, restaurants can stay open, but everyone has to be more careful and gatherings outside and inside are condensed. We'll hope it works like it did in Boulder. Also, uh, today, Polis said he's pushing for the vaccine announcement. So when the vaccine is available, he's sending a city... uh, a state plan to the CDC for how that'll be administered. Earlier this week, he made an announcement to help the the restaurants with surviving through the winter with an outdoor program. So good moves by both Hancock and Polis to try to keep things going. David, wrap it up for us. The society that's dealt with this most effectively has been Sweden, which is a high-trust society, and people have a lot of inclinations to social cooperation. And so they're people, older people, old vulnerable people, voluntarily chilled out, stayed out of the way, and they didn't have to go into a total lockdown uh, like so many other places. Uh, the U.S. is not a high-trust society, and what trust existed has been squandered. The World Health Organization, Centers for Disease Control, have switched their positions on so many things, actually lied uh, on a number of cases. People don't believe them. You know, the governor uh, may be a better track record, but you see the arbitrariness of, of even what he did. It's like, 
tobacco stores have to close, but marijuana and alcohol stores uh, can be open. There will never be another successful lockdown because people are just sick of it and they're not going to take it. Well, it's time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, it's not disgraceful that Colorado is off to a very, very fast and thorough vote. But don't don't fall for all the rumors that people are going to try to force you not to vote or that your vote isn't going to be counted. Just get on one of the ballot track programs, turn in your ballot, and hope for the best. David. On the ballot is Proposition EE about tobacco taxes, and there was a lawsuit filed in federal court today, uh, yesterday about illegal price fixing in that. the perp- What EE does is it's a Philip Morris special benefits bill. It sets a minimum price of $7 a pack on cigarettes, which is just a little bit more than what Philip Morris currently charges, but it's way more than Philip Morris's generic lower-cost competitors charge. So just like the tobacco settlement from 1998, which was really a deal to give Philip Morris an oligopoly, this is another deal supposedly by the tobacco reformers, but actually a money-making thing for Philip Morris. Eric, we go to you. Governor Jared Polis had the gall, the temerity to hire away the executive producer of this show, the very talented Elizabeth Kosar. I thought he had better political judgment than that. Now all of us around this panel are going to have to be increasingly rough on him. I, I, I'm back uh, to uh, writing the script, so sorry, everybody. But uh, thank you for those uh, good tidings for Elizabeth. Uh, Natasha. Well, well, the first debate was difficult to watch in many ways. As someone who just loves, loves, loves a good political debate, I was so disappointed to see that this week's debate was canceled. I don't think that last night's format was uh, beneficial to the American public. Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. I have to point out that Hancock also hired away Gabrielle from Channel, from <laughs> Colorado. True. Yeah, from Rocky Mountain, for PBS, this <laughs> station. So it doesn't work that well. I want to say happy birthday to my mother, the fans most, the show's most faithful fan. And one of our very favorites. So happy birthday to Patty's mom. It's wonderful to have you be able to join us here in Colorado, right? Fantastic. David. The county clerks and the volunteer poll watchers and everybody else who's working hard to make Colorado's election work properly. Eric. Two great journalists, Chris Osher in the Denver Gazette, just had a very important uh, lengthy piece on the Denver Sheriff's Department. I suggest people read it. And Natasha already beat me to this, but Helen Richardson, the photojournalist at the Denver Post, that photo will be one of the iconic photos of this year. And Natasha, we go to you. I'll do two quick ones this year. Uh, Colorado has great voter turnout, and this year looks like it's going to be no no exception. So thanks you to everyone who's voting this year. And then in addition to that, I have to give a, a positive comment to uh, Governor uh, Christie, who had the wise choice of coming out and saying that he was wrong about something. It's something that is so lacking in politics and just generally in life today. And I just appreciate someone who uh, can point out that they've done something and they want to change it. I need to quickly add my uh, comments to uh, Eric's about our producer, Elizabeth. Good luck in your next gig. Deputy Press Secretary for, for Jared Polis may not be as high profile as producer of Colorado Inside Out, but I think he'll do fine. Congratulations. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Kazuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.